of all the testimonies, a testimony is just the story of how God changed your life and turned things around for him. Of all the testimonies of every Christian who's ever lived, probably none is as dramatic as the Apostle Paul, who most of you know was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish leader and in authority there, and he lived to annihilate evangelical Christianity. He hated Christians, and he was trying to kill them, persecuting them to death. And then up until the day that he became one himself. And ever since he started opening his mouth from day one to talk about Jesus, he's changed roles from the persecutor to the persecuted, which is really what the Lord told him in the beginning through one of the prophets who laid hands on him and said, there's going to be a lot of suffering now that you've become a traitor to the Jewish religion and the Jewish um, his co-workers, as it were, fellow Pharisees. Uh, but God has called you to be a witness, a testimony, to share the good news with world leaders. So he's always known he was going to be in front of uh, leaders and that he would have to endure some hardship. And he was down for that. It was anything to serve the Lord whom he loved. And he said, you know, it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's his philosophy, that his life really didn't matter. Uh, he, he entrusted himself to God's care, and he would serve God no matter the cost. And when you serve God in a hostile world and you're always kind of holding out a truth that they don't want to hear, you're going to get into some trouble. But that was okay, because that's part of the package is, is that that's how they treated Jesus and that's how they treat his followers. And so um, that that's what's been going on and he's been suffering. So to give you some context and we'll pick up where we left off. The context is this. He's been under house arrest there, um, protective custody by the Romans. The Romans really don't have a problem with Paul. It's the Jewish authorities who are pressing charges in the Roman courts, right? And Rome occupies Israel, so they're the power, right? And so the trouble is he's had two hearings and he's been acquitted essentially, but somehow uh, he's still in prison and they just don't want to let him out because if they let him out, they make their Jewish uh, constituency angry. And so they don't want to do that. They're kind of stuck. What do we do with this guy? And meanwhile, uh, Paul is biding his time and praying and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And so now uh, we saw last time that hearing, the second hearing, uh, he was acquitted. And it wasn't going well. And uh, the, uh, even though he was acquitted, the governor at the time, Felix, was going to hand him over to the Jews. And they were, they were plotting to kill him. And Paul sensed all that, and so, so he appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So as we pick up where we left off, that hearing has just ended with Paul shouting out, I appeal to Caesar. And so the Roman governor conferred with his uh, um, cabinet there and uh, decided, okay, you appeal to Caesar, to, to Caesar you will go. So now things are being ready to ship him off to Rome. 
And then verse 13. A few days later now, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to the new governor, Festus, who replaced Felix. Two governors with funny-sounding names. Verse 14. Since they were spending many days there, the king, with this new governor, Governor Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's this guy here whom Governor Felix left as a holdover prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them, hey, it's not Roman custody. It's not Roman custom to hand over any man before he's faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. So let's park there and get situated. Here a surprise visit from King Agrippa. Herod is a title. It means hero. And Agrippa is also kind of a subtitle. It means wild stallion. But these Herods, and there's five in the Bible, they're not really heroes. They're more like villains. And they're not wild stallions. They're more like vipers. Uh, and so they're really bad news. And so he comes for a, a visit, this King Agrippa, because of the change in administrations. And so really, um, Festus is, is Rome's figurehead of authority in the region as the governor, right? But King Agrippa is really a head of the Jewish state, right? And they're supposed to cooperate together. King Herod is really subordinate to the Roman governor. But in this case, he's about to call a hearing where he's going to give uh, the king charge of the hearing when they pull Paul back into here <clears throat> once again from him and the story of his conversion. And so they come to, quote, verse 13, pay respects. All that means is they're schmoozing. Politicians do that. They want to get started off on the right foot so that the, they can make bribes. And uh, these guys are just nasty, and the historians say that. And so, yeah, um, John Phillips called this guy the last serpent in the brood of snakes of the Herod variety. <clears throat> well, keep your Herod straight. There's a whole bunch of them, like I said. Uh, number one, this man, Agrippa II, his great-grandfather is Herod the Great. You remember him in the Christmas story. His great-grandfather's the one who ordered the death of the baby boys to and under in, Be in Bethlehem because he heard of a prophecy that had come to pass with the star coming, you know, of a future king the king of the Jews. And he said, well, there's only going to be one of those, and that's me. <clears throat> so he gave the order. That's great-grandpa. Now, his, his grandfather is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and brought his head on a silver platter. That's grandpa. Now, that same grandpa is the one before whom Jesus, our Lord, stood silently did not say one word to him. When the Son of God has nothing to say to you, that's a problem. And so Herod mocked him, Grandpa, mocked Jesus and dressed him in his own purple robe. 
You remember that on Good Friday morning, the morning he went to the cross. That's Grandpa. His father made his distinction by martyring the first apostle. Remember James and John, Zebedee's boys? He beheaded James. In Acts chapter 12, he's the first of the 12 to be martyred. And uh, when he went to kill Peter, this is his father, he was struck dead by God there in Caesarea. And a painful, ugly, humiliating death. That was his dad. Now he stands, the great-grandson, the grandson, and the son of all of that and dynasty is the right word because it's dynasty. Uh, they are very nasty lot, I'll tell you what. And so here's what my opening takeaway is. God is preparing a meeting where the gospel is going to go forth with power. And I already asked for your patience because it's a long time getting there. And then he goes into a lot of detail. uh, But there's no place to stop the story or you ruin the momentum of the story. And so I asked for your patience and we'll cover a little bit of ground here. Uh, But God has sent the most gifted evangelists in the world to these people. Because not only does he love the victimized and the oppressed. He loves those who oppress. He doesn't love their actions. But he wants to save them for God wills that no one perish. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11, the Lord says this. As surely as I live, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but that rather that they would turn and be saved and live. You see, so we see these people as, you know, and God sees them as, yes, ew, but he loves them. He, he teaches us, hate the sin, love the sinner. It's as simple as that. And so in verse 14, uh, hoping he, he's hoping Herod is going to be of some help because Herod is known as an expert in the Bible, actually, the Jewish Bible, because he grew up as a quasi-Jew. He's really called an Edomite. He's from down south where Esau, he's related to Esau, and Esau started a nation called the Edomites, who are really the enemies. But there's just a smattering of Jewish DNA, enough to uh, make him Jewish. And so he knows all about this, and he knows the prophets. And so I imagine they're sipping wine on a balcony, being uh, fanned by a giant ostrich feather, you know, and he's like, listen, I inherited, um, the governor speaking, I inherited quite a dilemma from the former administration in the form of this holdover prisoner. A Jewish Christian evangelist turned the world upside down. The Jewish leaders want him dead. And I, I imagine Herod saying, are you kidding me? You got Paul there? Yeah, everybody knew Paul. He was pretty famous. So Festus tells Herod the details of the week, which we covered already, so we can breeze through, but I'll make a few comments because it's in the text for a reason. Uh, So verses 15 and following, he tells the story that led up until the moment he's talking to his friend, the king. He says, so king, I I go down (laughs) to Jerusalem to meet with the big shots here, follow along, and immediately they start pleading 
with me to condemn sight unseen this, this prisoner up in Caesarea named Paul. Verse 16, he says, I reminded these religious hotheads, uh, you know what, Roman law provides the right to have a hearing and face their accusers and give a defense. We just don't do that, you know, just condemn them. Take our word for it. Well, the funny thing is, he's already <laughs> faced his accusers by the predecessor, Felix. And Felix already said, I find no fault in him, right? But why complicate matters uh, with the truth? <laughs> so they're going to do it all again as if the first time never happened. Why? Because God is going to use their stubborn sin to glorify himself and give more people the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. So sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And uh, we find that to be true. Next slide. So he's still telling the story to the king. So, you know, when they came here with me for the trial, I didn't delay the case, but uh, convened the court the next day and ordered the man, that man, to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, about some dead man named Jesus, who Paul keeps saying, he's alive, he's alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem, you know, the religious center, and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would love to hear this guy myself. And he replied, tomorrow you're going to get your chance. So Festus continues telling him what we already know because we looked at it last week, right? And so they're going to convene the case again. The priests are going to press their charges again. And here's what's going to happen. The same thing has happened last time. And so... Uh, I love what he says. He says, I was expecting to hear like, he's a murderer. He's an armed robber. You know, he's an extortionist. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. All I heard about some dead guy, Jesus, who Paul keeps saying he's alive, he's alive, he's alive, and he can make you alive too. That's what I took away. Now, this is huge. Underline this. Governor Festus is telling after Paul was given lots of time, perhaps a couple hours of an interview, Festus' takeaway of what Christianity is all about is one thing, Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. That is the point of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the gospel. And it's the one sentence that determines whether you're going to heaven or you're going to perish. Your response to the claim that Jesus told Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if you die, you will live. Do you believe this? That's what he said. And when we trust in him, the Holy Spirit comes in, raises us to a life that can never die so Paul's not going to, and th this is the takeaway, it's so beautiful. 
This is the gospel, not the secondary peripheral issues that cannot save a person. So what if he, he came out and, and Herod said, well, what's the message? What does he keep saying? What's the issue? What's the big issue? Well, it's all about, you know, human sexuality and gender identity and about profanity and terrible morals. And it's about cleaning up your life and it's about being a good person. What if he did that? Well, he would lose his audience because you can do check all of the above without Christ and his death and resurrection and you're trusting in him for your sins to be paid for. You can do all the good deeds and be as real religious as you want and still perish because what saves you isn't your own effort. It's what Christ did on your behalf and you're receiving him as savior. And so I, I think that's just an excellent point. Let me show you Romans chapter 10 and then we'll move on. Look what the same Paul is saying. The guy who's always talking about this dead man who's alive. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, boom, there it is. You will be saved. There it is, one sentence. That's what saves you. Your behavior is irrelevant. It's your faith in God's son, or your lack thereof, that saves so this is amazing. Um, he says, yeah, he talks Jesus night and day and his death and resurrection. Uh, and now he appealed and he's going to ship him off to Rome. And Herod says, hey, I'd like to hear him. And he goes, yeah, you'll hear him tomorrow. So let's check how tomorrow goes. 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. He's a big king, somebody important. And entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers, all decked out, military splendor, <laughs> and the leading men of the city. It was a big parade, you know. At the command of the governor, Paul was brought in. Festus said, the governor says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us. It's a big room of impressive people. Listen up, everybody. You see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found, this is the most incriminating <laughs> statement, I found he had done nothing deserving of death. Then why is he still in custody? Just like Felix said the same thing. And guess what Pontius Pilate said of our Lord 27 years earlier? I find no fault in him. Well, we want him dead. I find no fault in him. Do you know that if you count the times, it's like six times. What has he done? He's innocent. And at the end, Pilate just washes his hands. He brings out water and he says, this is on you. Because I'm saying, I interviewed him, and he's innocent. Wow. Well, that's the thing. And Jesus, uh, I'm at the Last Supper, what did Jesus say? They hated me for no reason. The only reason is because I tell them, look, you've got sins. You've got to turn from them. You need to humble yourself and surrender to me as a Lord. So you're going to lose your autonomy. You can't just do your own thing in life because I'm the one who created you. 
and you're not doing the right thing. And nobody wants to hear that, so they push back. And they're going to push back for you, too, because you're saying the same stuff that I said. John 15, by the way, I was paraphrasing. So I found that he did nothing wrong to deserve death, but he made his appeal to the emperor, so I decided to send him to Rome. Oh, thank you for doing what the law told you you had to do. Oh, and I decided to send him to Rome. Whatever. Uh, 26, but I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. This is the funniest thing in the entire passage. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you now. You're about to hear him, and especially before you, King Agrippa, because he was a noted uh, uh, guy who knew the Bible. So that as a result of this investigation, it's not so much a hearing. This is an investigation that I may have something to write as a charge. Because he says, I think it's unreasonable, the word is ludicrous. It's ludicrous to send on a prisoner to Rome saying, hey, we, we have this such a dangerous criminal here. You know, we're going to send him to Caesar. And then Caesar's court says, well, what has he done? And then you go, uh, well, you know, he's... He talked about Jesus nonstop. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So just kill him. That's what is there. There's no crime. He, he says things people don't like and they get angry. That's his crime. And that's your crime. Now, I'm not endorsing being obnoxious because there are people, Christians, who are obnoxious. Sorry. And perhaps I've been obnoxious uh, at times. But from our heart, in sincerity, we're just trying to help people avoid a terrible tragedy and the forfeiture of their own souls, right? Okay, so, yeah, okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah, so the grand gathering, they all come in, all the government, government officials, the royal dignities, uh, and they're decked out. Uh, purple was a color that only rich people could wear, so there was lots of purple, lots of bling everywhere. They had trumpets to announce them, and then they would have grand announcements of titles and, and accolades, you know, ladies and gentlemen. So they came into a bunch of oohs and ahs and all of this stuff, the high and mighty saunter in the room, and which is amazing to me once again, that God has sent them the, the most brilliant mind, the most gifted evangelist, the, the author of 13 New Testament books to throw them a lifeline. Because it's not just about the ordinary victimized person in the world that God loves. He loves ordinary people and needy people, but he also loves rich people and people in power. He loves them and doesn't want them to perish. And because of that, he's held Paul over for two years so that God could throw these guys a lifeline. And maybe perhaps because of this meeting that you're about to, to un, it's about to unfold before us, that we'll see somebody in heaven. And that will be worth it to Paul. Paul sees it that way as well. And so, yeah, there they are. Uh, and, and I'll ask you a question. Who's the most important person in the room? Well, from the Bible's point of view and from God's point of view, it's Paul. 
Now, that's ironic. Instead of being robed in purple, he's wearing a humiliating orange jumpsuit of sorts, whatever that looked like back then. Instead of having gold jewelry, he's sporting a chain of a different kind, you see. Instead of accolades saying, ladies and gentlemen, this wonderful man of God. No, ladies and gentlemen, look at the man. Look at him over there. The Jews are shouting, kill him. And there he is all in orange and all in his chains. Dishonored before men, honored before God. And you know, God's father heart was filled with a holy pride. That is my son who rises to the occasion, has been mistreated for 27 years, and he takes it and takes it and takes it because he loves people like I love people. He's going to open his mouth and he's going to do his best to win those who are abusive to him. And you know God's holy angels are standing at attention by the side of this man of God. It's amazing stuff. So that's what we've got here. We're going to spill into uh, 26 as they try to find a charge that merits sending them to Caesar. Chapter 26, then Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motions with his hand. It's a kind gesture. It's a greeting. And he begins his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself, the word means happy or glad or joyful to stand before you today as I make my defense against all these accusations, especially so because you are, look at this, well acquainted with all the Jewish customs. He grew up Jewish. He knows the Bible. And controversies like, has the Messiah come or not? Controversies like, is Christianity a cult? Like what we're talking about. You know all about this. So I'm really happy that you're here. Because if anybody can understand this or sympathize, it's going to be you. So I'm pretty happy right now. That's what he's saying. So, And he says, listen, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul knows. It's going to take me a little bit of time to lay out a lot of details, to build a case so that it can be effective to persuade this guy to end the room, to trust in Christ and be saved. And so... Yeah, that's what's happening here. And I love that Paul begs him for patience and warns him, hey, I'm going to go a little long. Uh, I love this. One writer said, when the speaker knows he's going to go a little longer than what the audience might expect, it's best to give the audience a heads up. So did you hear me in the beginning? Yeah, I gave you a heads up. Because normally we don't preach to a chapter and a half. We're in the final chapter now. But um, yeah, so if you tell the audience, look, please be patient. You know, where do you stop in the story? You have to go to the end. And so I thought that was funny. Continuing on, verse 4 and following, he starts his testimony. This is what I was like before. This is how a testimony goes. This is what I was like before when I was an unbeliever, just like you all. This is how I had a supernatural encounter. This is how God changed me, and which leads to, this is my life now. Here's the evidence of a transformation. How do you explain this? How do I go from this to this? That's what's called your testimony. So he starts with how he used to be. 
excuse me, and he says, the Jews all know how I've lived ever since I was a little boy. From the beginning of my life in my own country, which was, he's born in Turkey, and they emigrated to Israel, scholars kind of say, when Paul was around 12. They have known me for a long, long time. They can testify, if they wanted to, if they were willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, the Orthodox of the Orthodox, I led the way. I was a Pharisee, and you can't get more devout than a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. So he's saying, the gospel that I preach is very Jewish. It comes from the Old Testament. I can show it to you in the prophets. This isn't some strange heretical thing. Verse 7, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it's because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So what is he saying? I'm on trial. I'm in trouble for one thing, because I'm hoping what the Bible tells every Jewish person and everybody in the world, that if you want to go to heaven, you put your faith in God. That's why I'm in trouble here, because I'm saying what the prophet said. Bottom line, heaven, eternal life. Why do you consider it incredible, he says, that there's a life after this one and that God can take us to heaven? That's the the implication. He says, is it so crazy to believe that the God who put 100 billion stars out there and put them into 100 million uh, galaxies and holds it all together by his power, he spoke it all into existence from nothing, Is it so incredible that there's a heaven waiting for us from God for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Is that so incredible that when we die, we go to heaven? Isn't that the point of Jewish faith, he's saying? So all I'm doing is saying, yes, the Jews are trying to get to heaven by keeping the laws and being good religious people. But they believe the same thing and want the same thing. They have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge and the knowledge that we can't be saved by religious goodness. We're saved by the sacrifice of the Jewish Messiah who comes. And he says, that's the reason that I'm in trouble. That's the reason. And so uh, continuing on there. I too was convinced that I ought to do everything possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints, saints is a word that means separated from, separated out of harm's way, out of hell, separated away from the world and sin, and separated to God and heaven. That's what saints mean. I threw many many Christians into prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. They were put to death because I said, yes, kill them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. And he probably got choked up there. In my obsession against Christians, I even chased them down to foreign cities. I left Israel. The ones who fled for their lives, you think you're getting away? Uh Uh-uh. Not with me. I'm going to chase you down and bring you back to justice. 
hopefully to put you to death. So that's a pretty amazing thing. So, yeah, um, hard to argue with. Here he's making a convincing case. You know, what, 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 why would a guy like that put his life on the line, lose all his friends, lose everything, and then have to endure 30 years of persecution? Why would I leave a cush job, one of honor with the Jews, one where everybody had admired me. I was the best Christian slayer in the business. Then why would I become one? Why? There's nothing in it for me other than it's really true. That's it. That's it. How do you explain it? And that's what he's going to talk about. So he says, I, I too, I, and this is a key thing. Always, his testimony always changes a little bit. On the three times you can study it, Sometimes he highlights some things, sometimes he leaves some things out, depending on who he's talking to, right? So you don't share the gospel with a bank executive uh, the same way that you would share with a derelict drug user or somebody who needs the Lord in that regard, right? So you follow cues and you're just kind of, I too, I know what you mean, you know? I too had some issues. I too felt empty and lonely or guilty. I too had a marriage that didn't work out. I too felt like you're feeling, and I was in unbelief. And then this is how God uh, got a hold of me. I love how he says, and he goes, I went further than all of you. You guys are just making threats and you yell a lot. I'm the one, I'm the guy who bashed down their door and dragged a screaming dad out from his little kids hanging to his legs, kicking his kids apart. And Paul told his testimony in another place that said the moms as well. He dragged moms out of the house and wanted to put them to death. And he says, when I got them downtown in the interrogation room, I said, listen, you want to see your kids again? Deny Jesus right now and publicly. We'll put you out in the square and you say Jesus is a liar and it's all false or we're going to kill you. That's what forcing them to blaspheme means. So why would a guy who would do something like that suddenly start preaching the faith he once tried to destroy? Well, there's no answer to that. Right? There's no answer except Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. And whoever trusts in him has forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, and life everlasting. It's just the truth. There's no other explanation. Let's go. Chapter 12, chapter 26, verse 12. I'll get this. It's my third time. Give me a little mercy. <laughs> On one of these journeys, now we move from this is who I used to be to this is how it happened. I saw the light. And that's all of our story in some form or another. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus, speaking of chasing them to foreign cities, Syria, with the authority and commission of all the big important people. About noon, oh king. And he's like, oh, you know, he's choking up. 
as I was on the road, I saw light from heaven. And we have all had that moment. Some of us, it was a gradual sunrise. And other of us, it was a thunderbolt, you know, and our eyes popped open, right? But like, like happened here. You saw, I, we saw this light brighter than the sun blazing around me and my compadres. Verse 14, we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in my mother tongue, they're all speaking Greek. He says, but God didn't speak to me in classical Greek. He spoke to me to my heart. And that's the point of that saying that, that we all have a mother tongue and it's not English. It isn't. There's a way to communicate to the soul he created where he, he knows how you think and he knows who you are because he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows how to talk to you. And we know when he's speaking. We just don't like to listen. We're like, what? I can't hear you, God. <laughs> you know, not good. Saul, Saul in Hebrew. Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats, isn't it? That's the kind of a question there. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, J-E-S-U-S whom you are persecuting. Your problem's with me, pal, not with them. You're always trying to kill them because you actually hate me. The Lord replied, now get up. Stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I'll show you. I'll rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them and look at this. This is like going to a conference in two sentences, a, a theological <clears throat> treatise, of course, of sorts. Verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. This is anybody you talk to is in this condition. This is God's opinion of everybody who doesn't know him. And what the purpose of every Christian who does know him the point of our lives is to help people to come out from all of this, from Satan to God, to turn to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are separated to me by faith. That's just a beautiful thing. We can go back and make some comments on. <clears throat> so I love this. He's saying, let's just make it clear. I didn't find religion I didn't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I didn't get brainwashed. I didn't, you know, start feeling sorry for all the people I persecuted. You know, you know what happened to me? I had a supernatural encounter with the living God. That's what most unbelievers don't understand about us. They think we just woke up one day and we decided we want to be church people. We want to be good people. Nothing's further than the truth. God had to knock us down and drag us screaming, most of us. He had to convince us. And the light dawned, and then because of God pursuing us, just like in this story, he just says, come on, you've got saving faith. I mean, Paul got to a place where he had to have started to believe, but he needed that little push. God was faithful to provide it. So he said, I met the Lord. The Lord met me. The rest is history. He saw the light, 
like that famous theologian, I don't know if you've heard of him, Hank Williams, <laughs> country singer there. He made uh, this song popular. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let the dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord. I know, me too. Uh, the next little lines. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness. No more night. Now I'm so happy. No sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. He had a power encounter. And he lost, thankfully. You do not. <laughs> you don't want to win your battle against God. You want him to win. You want to you want to tap out, sir. You really do. Because things could get ugly. Because <laughs> once God get, get, gets a hold of you and starts reeling you in, just go quietly. Amen? Go quietly. Because <clears throat> God always gets his men. You know what I'm saying? Amen. So he says, me and the posse, we got knocked to the ground. He started speaking my mother tongue. And I just found out. Jesus sets him straight right from the start. You know what? Your problem isn't with human sexuality and the church's view on that, gender identity, social justice, or the hypocrites in the church, or whatever your problem is with the church. It's not them. Your problem's with me. You don't want a Lord, and you love your sin. So you're taking it out on them, and you're making all the excuses about them as if this is their problem. No, 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 sir. It's me and you. You're resisting me. The fight's against your God, the God who made you. Uh, verses 16 and following, <clears throat> he gives them marching orders. And Paul's marching orders are ours. Of course, they look different. Of course. But we do the same thing. The idea is once God enlightens you to see, uh-oh, a life without Jesus ends in tragedy. And that's eternal. And now you know the truth from the moment you get saved. God says, help me. Share your testimony. Share the good news. Help people so that they don't perish. That's the whole, whole idea. And it's interesting that God says, in, in the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. In other words, everybody who doesn't know the Lord is kind of, to one degree or another, walking around kind of duped by the world's system and that excludes God and does it life their own way. So he says, your job in your sphere of influence, and the, and the kind of person you are, not me, you're not a pastor, you're not necessarily an evangelist, you're you. But God made sure to put a sphere of influence around you that in your way, with your mouth, with words, you're able to, to share the gospel so that those around you will be impacted and find the knowledge of the truth and be saved. The world's filled with, according to God's point of view, a spiritually blind people who need the light, spiritually oppressed people who need to be delivered. And the way that that happens is through our praying for them, us loving them, and faithfully and boldly and clearly giving them the gospel. The gospel's not complicated. 
we're sinners. We're separated from God because of that sin. <clears throat> God sent his son in love to lay down on a cross to take all of those sins on him and pay for them. And then he ra- ra- rises from the dead and, and comes by his spirit to everybody offering a, the deal of a lifetime. I took your sins. Trust in me. I'll forgive you and restore you to God. That's the gospel. And that's what will take a soul out of the dominion of darkness and into the light. And Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now we've got three paragraphs and we're done. We're going to read them straight through and I'll make a few comments. Then we'll take communion. So then King Agrippa, what did you expect? (laughs) I wasn't about to disobey the vision. I just told you, I, the Lord appeared to me. What did you, what did you think I was going to answer back? Hey, Jesus, listen up. If I start preaching the gospel, everyone's going to hate me. I'll get kicked out of the Sanhedrin. I'm going to get into a ton of trouble. I could get killed. So yeah, no. So King Herod, what did you think I was going to do? I wasn't disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Syria where I was going to kill them, <laughs> he ends up preaching there in their, in their church. Special guest speaker, the guy who came to arrest us <laughs> is going to give his testimony. Yeah, I, I came to get you all, but I saw the Lord on the way and he told me not to bug you anymore. <laughs> wow. First it, to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and then all of Judea, <clears throat> and to the nations. Gentiles means nations. Also, I preach that they should, and here's what got me in trouble, that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by doing good deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Because I tell religious Jewish people, oh, sorry, you too need to repent. You need to repent too. Religious people need a savior. Right, And that's why I'm here. That's why I got changed. Because I'm telling them stuff that makes them so angry that they've arrested me and want to kill me. Because, and why do they want to kill him? He's a traitor. He was one of them. He sat with them. <laughs> now they see him as a traitor. He's, he's making them look bad. So they want to kill him. That's why the Jews seized me. It's because I tell them what they don't want to hear. Verse 22 but I have had God's help to this very day so that I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets, all the Old Testament, I'm not going outside of the Old Testament or the first five books, Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer and, and, and be the first, that Christ would suffer, Isaiah 53, Psalm 23, the Jewish Bible. It's right there. Look it up, sir. And he would be first to rise from the dead, Psalm 16, for starters, and would proclaim light to his own people and to the nations. Next paragraph. At this point, of course, the devil, enter the devil, because they're, they're all zoning in. Their hearts are being moved. They're hearing the gospel from a very anointed preacher. And then there has to be disturbance. Oh, look over here, look over here, right? So Festus, the, 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 the secularist, he interrupts Paul's defense. He, You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouts. Your great learning is driving you insane. Oh, come on. Paul's crazy? 
Who's more crazy? Look around at the world, its intricate design, seven billion people, how people come from one microscopic cell, one cell, for 90 minutes, you were all one cell, and now a 100 trillion cell organism by itself? Who's more crazy? What's more ludicrous to say that everything and everybody came from nobody and nothing? A big explosion and chance? I think that's more crazy than saying there's a God who made heaven and earth and he loves us and he's designed a world, uh, a place in heaven that he's prepared for us. The king is familiar with these things. So he turns away from the governor to his Jewish compadre. And he says, I know the king. The king's familiar with these things. He's liking it. He can tell that the king likes it. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it's not done in a corner. In other words, Jesus was pretty famous. The miracles, the church in Jerusalem, everybody knows Christians there. They've seen lives transformed. He's saying, look, nothing's secret about this. He's a pretty smart guy, and he knows the Bible. So King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So now he's closing in for the deal. He wants them to sign on the dotted line, as we all do. Because if you sign on the dotted line and give your heart to the Lord, guess what? There's one who's going to be saved and go to heaven instead of hell. At least I got King Agrippa. That's what he's thinking. So let's do this. So look at what happens here. He says, I know you do. Now, why does he say that? Sometimes when you're talking, have you not noticed this? The Holy Spirit will just sort of give you a prompt and you just know by the look on their face and you know maybe of things you've heard in the past, but all the dots get connected. We call it a word of wisdom from God, a word of knowledge. And you just know. And he says, listen, dude, I know you believe Isaiah. I know you believe Jeremiah. You have some kind of reverence and it's the making of saving faith. Let's do this, man. So he's excited. He's zoning in on him. And look at his response here coming up. Then Agrippa says to Paul, do you really think that in a such, such short of a time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Here's what he's saying. Are you trying to convert me? Duh. Yeah, I, I am, because that's the whole point. The whole point of the Old Testament and the New Testament and anybody who comes into a relationship with God, the whole point is to use your life to help others to be converted from the road that leads to destruction, to be converted to the path that leads to life. Of course, and I love it, everybody you ever come in contact with as an unbeliever in time and in the right place should get the feeling they're trying to change me. Of course we are. And it's not even us doing it. It's the Holy Spirit saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, the Lord says. He's calling you through me and through us. Can you not hear him? And stop with this nonsense. Get a grip, Agrippa. Uh, uh, please. Oh, my goodness. Can do you really think you're going to make me a Christian in, in 45 minutes? Dude, 
get real. You've had 45 years. He has been after you. You know the scriptures. You grew up in a Jewish family. You've met Christians before. Jerusalem is filled with Christians, thousands of them. You've had a life of hardship, hitting your head against the, the, the wall there. You've been lonely. You've cried out. You've, you've heard God wooing you and tugging you. You've had moments of insight. God has been knocking for years, Agrippa. Don't give me this nonsense like, oh, this is all new to me. You've heard. You've known. You need to stop kicking against the goad. The goad is the sharp stick that you would train an ox. Don't you be kicking back here. Oh, you don't want to carry your load? You want to kick it off? Oh, no, we're going to put a goad there. You kick, and it's going to be painful. So the ox is smart. The ox goes, whoa, oh, not going to do that again. And they train the ox by putting the goad there. People, and, and the Lord says to Paul, doesn't it hurt? <laughs> You're fighting a losing battle. Why do you keep resisting me and kicking against the will of God? Isn't that the most silliest thing? And I love this. I love, he says, short time long, 45 minutes, 45 years. I don't care as long as you're breathing when you do it. I want you all in this courtroom to become like me. Except, of course, for the chains. And then I love this. Look at the favorable response. Look at what they say. They start talking to each other. Oh, the big important people. Oh, what was that about? This man isn't doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Look at that. He's getting through to them. They could have said, oh, what a nut job. Religious fanatic. There's a million ways to describe what they just saw. All negative. Yeah, I agree with Festus. The guy's out of his mind. No, no. No. He's not doing anything wrong. Why? Because those words and his tone and that story rang true. And they responded favorably. And I will not be surprised to see more than one of them Perhaps King Agrippa, wouldn't that be nice to see him in heaven and hear the story of there we were and he was preaching the gospel and I believed. Let's pray. God, thank you for the patience of your people along the passage today. It's a long narrative. We pray, God, that you would use these truths that are in this beautiful passage, to embolden us to do what we know we need to do, God, to shine a light, keep offering people the invitation, turn from your sins, man, and trust in the one that's knocking on the door of your heart. Let him in, and you'll never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.